some have a mom and a dad, some kids live with their grandparents, some may live with an older sister, right? Some kids have two moms or two dads, that there's just a whole different kind of constellation out there. And I would just try to link it to things that my kid is already a little bit comfortable first, right? So I want to take what they know and then kind of add one or two steps. When we are part of a family that doesn't look like the traditional family unit that our society has labeled as, quote, normal, we can find ourselves feeling isolated, othered, and marginalized. And for parents who maybe do have a typical looking family, it's really important to know how to instill values of acceptance, tolerance, and love within our children. I am honored that Dr. Erica Miller is here today to share her personal story of being an LBGTQ plus parent, raising two children with her wife, and the lessons that she's learned from her own experience as a parent, as well as from her professional role as a clinical psychologist. It is so crucial that we as adults have these conversations so we normalize for ourselves and our children that families come in all shapes and sizes. But it's also important to set developmentally appropriate expectations of what our children are able to comprehend and make our relationship a safe place for them to work through their feelings and their questions, while also equipping them with the tools to be able to stand up for what's right. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights, so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hi, Erica. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm just so happy for you to come back and join us. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Yeah. And so, you know, you were on the podcast before we talked all about school refusal. You and I have our colleagues in this field and we're just talking about all the connections and like random friends we know in this work. But you know, the reason why I actually asked you to come on today was not to talk about your professional work as much as I really think that your personal story and experience here might be incredibly helpful for parents to hear. And, you know, you are a lesbian, you have two children, you're married to a wonderful wife, and you're raising your kids in a world where you have a, a family structure that's different from what other family structures might look like. For sure. And I know that that's full of its own challenges. And I was just so excited that you agreed to come on and share just your journey on this. Yeah, I'm so happy that you had me here. I think it's such an interesting kind of conversation. And I think it probably depends like where in the country you are and where you live. Like I'm here in Brooklyn and there are like three or four other lesbian couples or non-traditional families like just on my block. And so for my kids, it's probably a little bit of like a different situation um, in terms of what they're seeing and what they're noticing. But I'm sure out there, there's other people that they're the only, you know, lesbian or gay family in the class. They're the only family that maybe has a transgender parent, right? So they're the only family that is X, that is a single mom by choice. And so that might, can feel really isolating. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, 
isolating. And also when it comes to parenting, there's this whole other dimension because it's like, one, we have to process all of what this means for us. Like, do I feel alone in this? Do I feel supported? Do I feel judged? Do I feel isolated? Do I feel like I have a community and, and I see people like me everywhere? But then there's this like extra layer of like, how do I raise my own children to have an identity that is both you know, respectful of mine and others, but also like their own. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's really, it's, it's, a, it's a lot. It's a very complicated. <laughs> There's a few conversations there, I think, Sarah, right? I think one is the expectations that we have about motherhood I could talk about, right? Like, yeah. so starting off with, you know, a lot of us probably have some expectation about what it means to be a mom, how they're going to be a mom, right? What their journey of motherhood is going to look like. And for a lot of us, that journey can look really different and for a whole host of reasons, right? Like, um, and for me, I did not know that I was going to marry a woman for a really long time. I did not see that as sort of my road. Um, and so when I realized that, that this was kind of who I was and the life that I wanted to lead, um, and just more of a part of me, it also meant that I, you know, fell in love with with a woman who wanted to also carry a child. And that in some ways, like, is the most special thing that we both got to experience this. And I, you know, it's interesting to hear so many moms be like, oh my God, you're so lucky. Like that is one of the things I actually hear all the time is you are so mm. lucky that you didn't have to do with that more than once, you know? Um, but actually for me, it felt really different mm. than, than, than that. It was, I actually really wanted to or envision that I would carry on my children. I know that that is not possible for everybody, um, but that was the fantasy that I had <laughs> for yeah. myself. Um, and so that initially was actually really hard because I had imagined I would grow this baby inside my uterus, that I would be the one to breastfeed, that I would be the person to give birth, that, that I would be that that initial kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um and I didn't have that. My my wife is five years older than me. Um, and so logistically, it made sense for her to actually, you know, try to get pregnant and um, give birth first. So that was definitely a really big shift for me, like processing what it would mean to be a parent in a way that did not feel as traditional or was not in the way that I had sort of envisioned for, for my life. Yeah. That's so interesting because it's true. Like I think when we think about same-sex couples, I mean, there's obviously sort of like biological challenge, right? You have to figure out where one of the extra chromosomes is coming from, right? But but when you have two parents who really want to hold that role and you have to kind of take turns or perhaps even forego that role completely, how you're going to grieve a loss. Absolutely. It definitely felt like a, like a loss for me. I mean, I think ultimately there was so much that was gained and I think it's actually really special in many ways now that we both got to kind of experience everything and I would never have wanted to take that away from her. Um, Mm -hmm. but it did feel like a loss and I wasn't really sure initially like what my position was going to be like. And I also think in terms of the medical community, um, when, you know, we were in the hospital for a while due to some complications, people didn't know what to do with me. Um, and that was really challenging. I mean, one person said, you know, are you the grandma? I was like, what? (laughs) Um, I'm not ready to be a grandma yet. And I certainly wasn't ready when my daughter was born. Um, so just like, where do I fall on this kind of spectrum? You know, making sure that everybody understood like, no, I was the parent. I was going to be listed on the birth certificate, right? That was like a whole kind of not really a challenge here in New York, but just felt like very important and really wanted everybody like the hospital team to know 
that we were equally the parents um, because the de facto still was, or maybe still is like, where's the dad? Yeah. And even to just be able to say, I'm the mother Yep. when I didn't give birth to this child. And I think that's probably true for all, all, all kinds of scenarios. I think that happens for a very long time. You know, there's so many forms that I still fill out the same mother and father, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Oh, there's, there's two moms. Okay. But who's the mother? Well, we're both a mother. You really want to know who's the biological mother and do you, and do you really need to know that? And, and I'm a psychologist. And so sometimes that does actually matter to me in the sense of, I might be looking for like, what is a child's genetic history? Is there a genetic loading somewhere? Right. And so mm-hmm. it does actually sometimes make a difference, but I try to be really thoughtful in the ways in which I'm going to ask about that or talk about that, because I know that both parents' experiences are so valuable for this child. Right. And I certainly don't want to ever alienate ever either parent. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting, you know, having both this dual perspective, right, as the mother going through this, but also as like a a psychologist who's navigating similar scenarios with their own patients, right? Like not assuming who is in this family and what their titles are and how we can have more inclusive language. Like I still get, I don't, I have a husband and my children you know, are gender conforming. And I still cringe when there's a yes or no checkbox to like something, or it's like male, female on the form. And it's like, what, this has got to hurt people to have to answer this if they don't fit on that page. And it's so easy to put another checkbox that just says self-describe. Right. Or parent one, parent two, right. You kind of alleviate kind of all of that. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. The mother, father binary still feels very much. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, in your community, among your friends, your peers, but also like in your work as a clinician, you know, do you find that there are certain themes that parents of same sex, you know, marriages who have children, they routinely struggle with beyond some of the things we've just described, like coming into parenthood, but all the way through it? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I think one of the big ones that people can sometimes struggle with is talking about, you know, where is the dad or where is the mom, right? That's often something mm-hmm. that comes up that kids start to actually like pay attention to and think about. Um, and I know in my family, like we we like to think we're like really good moms and we like to think that our daughter is really lucky to have both of us. It's funny. One of our friends actually made my daughter a t-shirt when she maybe turned like two, that said, it's like two moms are better than one. And uh, we like love that very like proudly. But I think at the same time, it sort of speaks to this like need that we may have. And again, you know, I'm just one person um, with my own journey and my own experiences. And I certainly don't want to represent everybody out there that there's, we have this t-shirt and we both love it, but I think it sort of for both my wife and I might even like prey on this fear or worry that we have, that we need to sort of like project, you know, that, that we are really okay, that we are, that might, that our daughters are really okay, that they have two moms. Right. Um, and so I often think like sometimes answering these questions for our kids brings up so much more anxiety in, in us, you know, I think the world certainly has shifted, but some of us come from families that might be more religious, um, that might, have had different ideas about how a child should come into this world. And so, you know, I definitely have 
friends and acquaintances who, you know, their extended families may not have believed that they should be bringing in children into this world um, or that the world is not ready for this kind of thing yet. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I think when my child asks me like, where's my dad? For me, there's an element of, I have guilt there that kind of comes up. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think the issue in some ways is actually more for me to kind of work on and manage that and sit with her through that um, and really try to be present for her and not to kind of squash her like, question. I might, you know, I might want to say like, no, it's fine. You know, you have uncle Jerry and we, we can get you a dog or like whatever it is to kind of make up for this fact. I think that's the piece. There's, there can be an element of trying to like compensate or to make up mm-hmm. for what you don't, what you don't have. Right. Right. Which really is in reality, our projection, right. Our, we're projecting some value on the absence yeah. of the father in this case. Right. And Maybe our child is just asking, where is my dad? Because I don't understand because other kids do have dads and I don't seem to have one. And where is my dad? And do I have a dad? Which doesn't necessarily mean, how did, why did you do this to me? Right, correct, right? But it, it preys on that, I think, sure. a lot. Or it hits this nerve. And, you know, I think that could be a fear of mine that I actually, like, do have somewhere, right? Like, and so... I don't think it's conscious and it wasn't, but it's, I think it's common for a lot of people. Um, And so, and also explaining like where they come from is sort of, how do we make a baby? How does this work out? And I know like there's a lot of families that, you know, use IVF or IUI or other non-traditional means to kind of make, make a baby. But I don't know that that is always as explicit at such a young age often Mm -hmm. when there is a more traditional like mom and dad figure. Right. Right. Um, because the child may not know that necessarily mm-hmm. or just assume, oh, it doesn't really matter. Like I see there's mom and dad together. So it's not as big of a question mark. Yeah. They might not be as prompted to ask the questions. Yeah. Although I actually do encourage like families who have um, like medically assisted reproductive, you know, processes or, you know, like to be able to find a way to have a narrative and a story about their families you know, how, how the birth happened, how it became obviously developmentally appropriate. You don't need to like get into all the technicalities of everything, but to be able to start the narrative from the very beginning that like, you know, different families create their kids and create, build their families with lots of different ways. I think that is also shapes and sizes. I think that's so important. I mean, that was actually something for me that I felt like I needed to work on before we had our first. And so Mm -hmm. like while my wife was pregnant, I was like reading up and in part it was for my child, but it was really for me. Like what's the best way for me to learn and understand how I tell her how she was made, how she was born. And I remember, you know, for so many nights, like for her first like year, you know, when I put her to bed and she'd have her bottle, I would sort of tell her this story. And I, I don't know how much of it was for her versus how much of it was for me in terms of like practicing and becoming really comfortable with that. And I think that that is actually like a really important piece for families out there to really become comfortable, like practice sharing the story. You know, you don't mm-hmm. want the first time is when <laughs> you're like halfway out the door and your kid asks you a question and you're kind of distracted and you've never really thought about it before. Yeah. Um, you really want to kind of have a sense of what is it that I'm actually going to say? What is it that I actually want to say and feel comfortable in that? Mm-hmm. And I imagine like we all have scenarios, no matter what the, the, you know, fill in the blank, right? Some challenging question our kids are going to ask about our family, 
Yeah. Why do we believe in this religion? Or why why does grandma like not live with grandpa? Or yeah. what, you know, like I've what, just been answering those too. Yeah. It's like so, but I think there's a look, a real universality to this idea of like every family is very different. And, and every kid wants to understand where do I come from? Yeah. And I think also, is what happened in your situation possibly going to happen to me? Like, like they're mm-hmm. all I think, trying to make sense of the world. Um, in, in Through their a very world. egocentric lens, too. Um, completely. I mean, for the most part, I think that's really age appropriate, right? Like yeah. most children are egocentric. Is what happened? My child has just noticed that my parents are divorced. Um, and so she was confused about how I have like two moms and two dads, um, which I don't feel like I do, but in her mind, I sort of did. Um, and that was really like interesting. And so, and also thinking through like, wait, if that happened to you, if your parents don't live together anymore, does that mean that you and mom are not going to live together anymore? Right. So really trying Mm -hmm. to think, like, really trying to make sense of themselves. Who am I and where am I in this world? Right. And so I think if we use that as a framework, right, if that's the lens through which I look at any challenging thing my child is trying to make sense of, and that I might also be trying to make sense of my own self is like, how do I answer questions my child might ask me in a way that helps them feel seen, safe, reassured that, you know, they can ask these questions and we're going to have a very like, you know, calm and enveloping response. We're not going to get totally frazzled. It's totally okay to say, oh, that's a really good question. I don't have an answer for that right now. Let me think about it and I'll come back to that. Like you can buy time. Or I'm so happy that we're talking about this, right? I think it's like so important. It also Mm -hmm. buys you some time, right? So whenever my kid asks me a question that I'm not totally sure, I'd love to say to her like, I'm so happy that we're talking about this. Like, tell me more, you know, yeah. what, what made you think about this? And it really just gives me sometimes an extra second to think about what I might want to say and not feel so put on the spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes it helps her kind of think things through a little bit more. Sometimes not, you know, she doesn't always have an answer. She's still young, but it just kind of decreases this pressure that I sometimes put on myself that I have to answer everything like right, right now. So I love that yeah. I don't have an answer let me think and get back to you on it. Yeah. And I also like when you're your follow-up of like, oh, I'm so glad you are asking me this. Like, what made you think of that question? They may actually answer that with information that will guide the level of information they're actually looking for for you. Like, you know, we don't need to get into the the nuts and bolts of everything. Maybe they just want to know, you know, that I don't know, whatever it is. Like there's yeah. some level of like age-appropriate inquiry that you can answer without getting too in the weeds because maybe they're not actually asking what we fear they're asking. Or to your point earlier, maybe they're just asking for information instead of needing reassurance that everything is okay, right? That there's a problem to solve. Right. Exactly. I think we often go to they're unhappy about this or this is a problem for them versus they're actually just curious and trying to situate themselves, right? Right. Um, and that that makes me think of this other piece that I kind of was curious and wanted to talk yes. to you about in this episode, which is, so obviously, you know, I know there are parents who listen to this podcast who are, you know, same-sex couples figuring out, navigating how to raise kids in a world where, you know, they may be the only kid in their class who's got two moms. But then there's also a ton of parents who listen to this podcast who are maybe in more traditional looking families, but they want to support their child when their child comes home and is like, 
why does Johnny have two mommies? Or why does, you know, Amy have a dad who wears a dress? Like what's, what, how do I, and then parents are like, I want to answer this thoughtfully, but I don't know always the best thing to say, or these questions are, you know, being asked in public, like, how do I respond? And so I think, you know, there's a lot of ways to, to feel ill-equipped to answer these tough questions our kids throw at us. I think it happens like so often, right? And it ha- and they, we feel like they're coming out of the blue. I think in terms of answering that question, and I, I don't think there's one universal answer, but I tend to go back to the idea that there's many different ways to be a family. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes I kind of then would sort of share like your family looks like this, right? Your family maybe has a mom and a dad. And if maybe the parent's family is divorced, I might say that. Um, and I might also call upon if I know of, if my, if I know that my child knows of any other families that look a little bit different, Hey, you know, that John's parents are divorced. You know, that Sarah lives with her grandma, right? So the goal that I'm trying to do is say, is pull on things that my kid already knows about that already feels kind of familiar mm-hmm. to the idea that there's all kinds of families in this world, right? Some have a mom and a dad, some kids live with their grandparents, some may live with an older sister or an aunt and uncle, right? Some kids have two moms or two dads, um, that there's just a whole different kind of constellation out there. And I would just try to link it to things that my kid is already a little bit comfortable first, right? So I want to take what they know and then kind of add one or two steps Mm -hmm. from there. I think that's often like an easier kind of way to start in terms of like expanding their viewpoint. And then I might say like, there's no right way to be a family. There's no one way and there's no right way. These are all families. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. And I think it's, I like this idea of kind of anchoring them in stuff they already know to sort of help them make links. Like this is just another example of what you have already gotten used to seeing. Exactly. I think it makes it a little bit easier for them also to kind of make sense of things. And I think another way to do that is to talk about like TV shows that your kids watch, right? Movies that that they've seen. It's so much, I think it's so much more helpful. It really makes it come alive to our kids Mm -hmm. as well. Oh yeah. It's like that. Um, My daughter really likes Princess Sophia and she knows that they're actually like, I don't, I don't even know if it's widowed or divorced, but there are two families that are merged. And so mm-hmm. that's something that we talk about a lot since she actually doesn't see that in her regular life right now. Mm-hmm. I'm sure she will at some point, but she hasn't yet. Yeah. And like, I think too, another thing, and this has come up, you know, in some of the work that I've done with families, but this idea of like, when you've got a child who does have two of the same sex parents, um, or perhaps in this example could fit in any other, like, family system that's not as typical where they, the child might be out in the world, you know, hanging out with friends and somebody says something really homophobic and that child doesn't know what to do in that moment. Like how, and maybe it's not directed at them. Maybe it's just like being said. Right. And how that child might then feel either a sense of like, I need to speak up and say something, or maybe I'm really afraid to speak up and say something because I don't want a spotlight on me. Or maybe I even laughed at the joke. And now I feel like tremendous guilt and shame. And like, you know, how do you, I mean, as a mom whose child may experience this one day, like are there ways that you and your wife are thinking about how to prepare your kids for scenarios like this? And how might you? Yeah, I think there's two. To me, there's like two separate pieces here, I guess, and probably more than two. But one is how do I, I mean, I want to raise my child to really be like an upstander, right? Um, to value everybody, to be kind. And 
am also aware that kids say and do things um, that aren't. And I also don't want to be putting pressure or making it be my child's job to protect me. Right. And so I think these are somewhat competing, but two things that I really want to be able to teach both of them. Um, so I think in other situations, really working on what does kindness mean, right? How do I raise like an anti-racist child? How do I raise a child, right? That, you know, believes in LGBTQIA rights. How do I teach my child about anti-Semitism? Like, how do I teach my child to be this like kind, opened value center person on the one hand? Um, and I know that we all as people have like soft spots, right? And so, and we also all as people have situations that we're in that feel really uncomfortable to us. And sometimes in situations that we're really uncomfortable, it's sometimes hard to act in our best self. And so what I want my child to know is equally is that like, no matter what you kind of say or do, we love you. You know, you're not going to be in trouble. And what we want to be able to do is talk about these moments after the fact without this fear of like judgment or that we're really like ashamed or disappointed in you, right? That like mm-hmm. we are actually the place that we can kind of talk and role play and think through these situations because there's no way that even adults handle these things 100% perfectly 100% of the time, right? These are tough situations. Yeah, yes. And I think it's so critical. It's like, it's another scenario. And I think this has come up a lot in this episode where it's like, you could you could literally lift this scenario and put it on so many different versions of the same thing, right? We have certain family values. And when you are out in public and you are among people who are, who are actively engaging in behaviors that are in conflict with those family values, how can you act? But also if you, if you, if you move against the, our family values, how do you feel safe to come back and say, Hey, I, this happened and I didn't know what to do. And this is what I did. And I need help navigating this versus internalizing that conflict and having to figure it out on my own as a small young kid who doesn't have the skills sophistication or yeah. And then what does that do? That's actually like the real piece that I want to teach my kid is that no matter what, you can come back. Like we're safe and we can talk about it. And you're not responsible for protecting our feelings or, you know, defending our family all the time either. Like I don't want them to have to also feel like they have to be the face of this 24 seven, right? That can also Mm -hmm. feel like it's a lot of pressure all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. So to know, you know, when things do come up, a joke could be said, you know, and there can be, I think, sometimes like some like fine lines in various situations. So more I want to teach my child is, hey, come back and talk to us. Yeah. And I think you teach that both by explicitly saying it and saying, hey, if this ever happens, you know, you can always come talk to me and you're never going to be in trouble. You know, we're going to help you figure this out. But two, by actually walking the walk so that when your kid does anything, and I'm not just talking about in this particular scenario, but when they mess up or when they do something that is like deeply misaligned with your values, that you can respond to them in a way that is, you know, communicating what the expectations are, but also understanding out loud, hey, we all make mistakes. We could talk about this, right? Right. You aren't a bad kid for making a mistake. I'm not mad at you. I'm not even, I don't even like the, I'm so disappointed in you. No, I just, I just want, I just want to understand. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've, I have two kids and 
they're siblings and they act, my older one, you know, acts sometimes like an older sibling because my younger one acts like a two-year-old, right? And so they've taken each other's stuff or they've pushed each other or things like that. And I think the more that we can just talk about, hey, what's happening? You're not in trouble here. I just want to understand and let's figure out what we can do differently next time lends to itself to a much stronger bedrock than kind of punishment or kind of yelling or getting mad or feeling disappointed in, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, and that doesn't mean we don't get to teach our kids our values. You know, we could still go back and say, hey, you know, when you hit your sibling, you know, I'm going to give you a strategy and help you understand, like, we got to, we got to do something else next time. Exactly. But I'd rather her share what happened as opposed to deny that nothing did happen. Right. Mm -hmm. Because, and I also, I, I know my daughter, I see her, I see her kind of like worried on the inside. I see that she like runs to her room when we ask her these questions sometimes. Right. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's feelings there of shame that she doesn't know how to process. Mm -hmm. And so the more that I can say, Hey, I'm going to sit with you through this feeling. Like literally I'm on your bed. I'm next to you. Um, these feelings don't scare me. The more I think it lends itself to when you're older and more, even more challenging situations happen, um, that we will still be sitting on your bed, talking you through this. Like we're not going anywhere. Yeah. And I liked your point too, when you going back to this, the the more specific thing around having, you know, being in a situation where other kids are saying things that are homophobic and having your child understand, I have a toolbox for responding to this, but I also, it's not my responsibility to protect yeah. my parents. Like I can do that if I have the bandwidth and have the safety to do it in the moment. Wonderful. And we certainly want to give our kids tools to be able to do that in a moment where they feel like they can. But I think there's a really complicated nuance of like also helping our children know, like even just the language, like this is something you can do versus this is something you should do. Right. Absolutely. It's so nuanced, but I think really like key. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. For them to feel like they can participate. They they can, if they felt like they wanted to laugh, they can laugh. And it doesn't mean that they don't love us or they're not part of this family anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's very freeing for kids who come from families where they they are likely to, they're more likely to experience some type of um, prejudice yeah. based solely on the kind of family they come from. And, you know, as we're talking about it, this, I think it's sort of important to add that like, Obviously, making jokes at the expense of other people and making jokes that are disparaging of a group of people in any capacity is not okay. Right. But I also think it's important that we recognize we're having this conversation in the context of children. And we also really need to have developmentally appropriate expectations of children. And they say stupid stuff that they didn't think through. And they say not okay stuff sometimes. And it's like we... We could sit here and and tell kid never ever tell jokes like this. It's never okay. It doesn't not- mean to happen even if we say it right. So I think on both ends we need to give like my children need to know how to address and manage and cope with these kinds of situations. Um, and sometimes out of that will come how do we go back to the school and share with them or other parents or other kids. Yeah. And also how do we not vilify kids for making mistakes? Because I do think, you know, obviously we're not talking about adults here. We're not talking about people at work saying inappropriate things. We're talking about, you know, eight, nine, 10 year old kids at a lunch table with peer pressure and no adults perhaps watching. And somebody says something and it just gets bigger than they 
it gets, they get ahead of their skis and everybody starts piling on. And now we're in territory that's really problematic, but these kids may not have the tools to, to, to navigate that. So we really want to teach kids like, obviously, yes, we want to teach them what's okay and what's not okay, but we also want to give them tools to navigate situations once they're in too deep. Right. Because that's going to happen. Yeah. Unfortunately, but it will. Well, I also think this comes up a lot in terms of, you know, when they're around, I mean, my children, you know, know a lot of other kids who have same-sex parents. And so I'm curious what that's going to look like as they get older, right? And they start talking about these things. Um, and I don't know where that conversation is going to go. And, and will that conversation or the openness or the allowance for these kind of things be different when they're with other you know, kids who have same-sex parents versus when they're with kids who don't have same-sex parents, right? I think the intent of the peer group and the intent of the comment actually matters a lot as well. Um, yes. not, not always, but can matter and can make a difference. Right. And I think, you know, it's, I think there's a really big difference too between a child who's growing up in Brooklyn around same-sex families and, and heterosexual couple families and all the range of everything. And to be sitting at lunch table and some kid just says a homophobic joke and everyone laughs versus a child who may be the only kid in town with two parents that are the same sex. And there's really no way that they feel like even safe talking about it at the lunch table period, because there's, that's a different, that's a different environment and a different situation altogether. And I think I recognize that you and me, like two parents parenting in New York, it's a very different picture than families in other parts of the country. And I'm, I'm like, I couldn't speak to that community and that culture, but I know it's not the same thing. Well, and I, I also want to say, I want to really take account of like, how did my kid feel during that experience, right? I think that's also like a really important piece. So maybe a joke was said and they laughed and they didn't feel at that moment they could say something different or they could go against the grain of their friends. Um, but I also am really curious, like, did that feel good to them or did it not feel good to them? Not their laughing, but the joke in and of itself. I think that's like a really important piece too, Yeah, right? Is to like separate. They don't have to defend me. It's not really about me. That's the piece. It's about how do they feel actually in that experience of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that I really care about. So my child might've been like, I, I didn't know what else to do. Everybody else was laughing, but I felt really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Right. To me, that's really different than like, it didn't bug me. I thought it was kind of funny. Um, that's like a very different experience. But I do wonder if a lot of our kids or my, my kids will sometimes feel un- uncomfortable and then feel pressure to say something to, to defend me, to defend their family. Right. Because I think for the most part, it doesn't feel so good when your family is injured or kind of joked Absolutely. about. Right. So I also want to be really careful about that, that my child does not have to feel like it is their role to protect our family and they always have to stand up. Um, but I do want to know how they feel in those situations, if it feels okay, or if it felt uncomfortable, if it felt disarming, like what were they thinking and feeling kind of in that moment? And that affected the way in which they were able to respond to their parent. Yeah. Because I think that, that alone is going to help a child process and make conscious some of the feelings that perhaps came up in that moment that they might not have either the the mindful awareness of noting it in the moment or perhaps they notice it but they didn't have language for it you yeah. know that that it's it's sitting with them right right and i mean the fact that 
you know, in this scenario, this hypothetical scenario, you know about it. So they obviously came to you in some way to talk about it. Um, but I think there's certainly times where we can like cope ahead and say, Hey, should this scenario ever happen? I just want you to know. I think think we can almost guarantee, right. That these Mm -hmm. situations are going to happen. I think we really try to live in a community and in a world where we're trying to say, Hey, we're not going to, that these kinds of jokes are actually not like not okay under any circumstance. Right. I think that's the message that we really need for the most part, our kids are being taught. And yet these things do come up. And so I think prepping our kids as much as possible for how they may feel when the situation mm-hmm. happens, what some response options could be um, when this happens, and that no matter how they respond, knowing that like we support all of those responses, even if it's they did absolutely nothing, even if it is they laughed and went along with it, right? For them to really understand that we support them, we are with them, we want to help them through this process because I think for some of the kids, it may feel really uncomfortable and scary. And like, what does this mean for them um, as like their place in this world? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that every parent who's listening to this, whether you're a same-sex parent or a heterosexual couple, like if you are raising kids in this world and you want them to feel safe and seen and have a place where they can go to to talk through challenging things. Like this is a framework for that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful that you like came on and shared this. I know it's, it's so hard because you know, the, the idea that like I can have a, a lesbian mom who's a parent come onto my show and explain what it's like to to have this experience and have it be universal is like not possible. Like your experience, no, it's, your it's, experience. It's not, yeah. I mean, I think if my wife was on, she'd have a really different experience than me on like so many levels, right? She came out much earlier, knew much earlier, um, didn't have any had very different experience about me getting pregnant. Right. And so there's so much about our own histories and what we bring to the table and our like fantasies and expectations that I think can guide the first part um, of our conversation. I think the second piece, I I know that we both have similar kind of ideas in terms of how we want our children to feel in terms of supported by us and understanding about the many different kinds of families Mm -hmm. that do exist. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so interesting, right? Like I feel like everything we said today could be applied to literally any family. And isn't that just the point, right? Right. That's the point. We are just like a family amongst so many. And I think all families have different stuff. And different stories. Yeah. Yeah. And we all just want our kids to be able to come and talk to us when things are tricky. Yeah. About anything. Yeah. Yeah. And talking to kids about stories, I think is also like such a wonderful, like universal thing. You know, I mean, I, I have a mom and dad, but I might have grandparents who were immigrants and I loved knowing about their stories as well. Right. So I think when you put that in context, like kids, no matter what, love knowing about their stories, because I yeah. think there is this universal need of like, like I've said before, who am I, where do I come from? Um, and for some of us, it's working through our own feelings about that. <laughs> where mm-hmm. do they come from? That is almost the harder part than sharing it with, with our child, right? It's less about our child's reactions and more about our own reactions. Yeah. Which is something I think is also another really important part is to know your story, do your own work to be truly comfortable with your story and not necessarily have that be something you're working through with your child as they're trying to understand their story so that we can just be very objective and sort of emotionally attuned to them and their needs in the moment 
without projecting ours onto them because we're doing that work separately. We're creating our own sense of our own narrative so that when our children are are using our relationship to process their story, their narrative, we can just be a support for them and have it for be sure. kind of like not, not um, intertwined with our own. Exactly. And I also want to say that like, what the story is going to shift over time, right? Like it's going to become more expanded. It's going to become more detailed and it is totally okay to have different feelings and reactions, I think, along the way for the parent and for the child, right? That might not always be the same. And so it is okay to go talk to somebody, talk to a therapist, like do your own work on this kind of piece. How you feel at the beginning one day may not be the same as how you feel in 10 years. Um, that's something I'm, I think, thinking about a lot, that how I feel about, you know, the things I was thinking about before my child was born have kind of shifted now, and I'm sure they're going to be shifting some more. Yeah, so true. So true. Thank you so much for coming Thanks on for and me. giving us this window into your life and your world. I really appreciate it. This was so great. I'm happy to answer any more questions. But thank you, Sarah. It's always such a pleasure to be here. Yeah. If people want to learn more about the work that you do from a clinical perspective, like, you know, they can always go back and listen to the episode on school refusal because that was a great one. And I know you have a lot of resources on school refusal. Um, But how can people get in touch with you? Um, So my website is connectedmindsnyc.com. And I do a lot of neuropsych evals as well. So feel free to reach out to me there. Um, and that would be great. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you, you have these clinical services and and you work with everyone, but I also think some families really want to work with a clinician who lives the life that matches their own experience, you know, and it's actually really interesting. I have not put myself, you know, I have slowly been putting myself more out there in this way, but I Mm -hmm. really haven't. And I really actually like stayed away from it in terms of like a professional identity. Um, it's interesting because I live in Brooklyn, right. And, but I also know that some families probably don't want or didn't think about it, or maybe it was my own kind of right internal thoughts and feelings about this. And so when you asked me, I was like, huh, interesting. This could be good for me to kind of come out there and do this and like have this kind of conversation because it's not something that I actually like publicize. Um, some, some of my families that I've seen that are, you know, also two moms or within the LGBTQIA community, I don't even share that with, because it's not always like relevant. And yet for a lot of families, I feel like it is actually relevant. Do you understand my story? Do you understand my struggle? And, you know, again, though, different lesbians, different stories, different experiences, Mm -hmm. different people. Right. So I always really want to make sure that I'm coming at it with like, who are you? What is your experience? What is your story? Cause certainly like mine is not the same as so many other people's. Right. Um, And I think, and I, I, as a psychologist, I so relate to this, like we went through all of this training and there's a huge emphasis in our training to be a bit of a blank slate, right. To be a bit of a you know, white sheet on which to allow your patient to project all their things onto. And, you know, self-disclosure is something that you do very thoughtfully and judiciously. And so it's, but I also think we live in a world today where, you know, the field of psychology has come a long way. And I do think certain types of self-disclosure you know, only when it's comfortable to you and it feels relevant sure. to the to the patient or the client, but like it can make a big difference to people. I think it can. I mean, it's interesting as, as you're saying this, it, it, it makes me think about like whenever I meet another lesbian couple or whenever I see that uh, 
child in my daughter's class has like lesbian or gay parents that I almost feel a little bit like excited. And I always have questions. And somehow whenever we like hang out, we still always talk about what, what was your coming out story. And we also seem to always talk about like, how did you choose to make your family in the way that you did? Because I think there is some connection. Our stories are different, but I think there's some familiarity there of that there is, there is a story and we know that it's different, right? Or we know if you're two moms, you had to figure out a way to make your child in a non-traditional way. Like how did, what was your thinking process? Here was mine. I'm so curious about to hear other people's thinking processes. So I think you're right. There is something about that that feels like, oh, they, they could, this person can likely understand some of my thinking, right? Or has had some kinds of similar thoughts or experiences there. Mm-hmm. Um, and their children might be going through something similar as my own children, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how much I find that I will self-disclose aspects of my parenting with parenting, people I'm doing parenting support with. Um, Whereas, you know, if I'm treating someone for depression, I'm not necessarily going to talk to them about the fight that I have with my kid getting out of the house in the morning. Like that's not relevant. But I do find that when I'm doing parenting support sessions, my own struggles as a parent feels very important to self-disclose because I think especially with parenting where there's so much pressure we put on ourselves as parents, as a whole, as a group to do it right and not mess up. Um, and there's a way in which if you're going to someone for parenting support, they must always get it right. And they must be, they know all the answers. And I'm like, I think me normalizing that, like, even someone who studies this and does this professionally and knows all this stuff about child development and the quote unquote rules totally messes up sometimes. And my kids don't behave all the time. And having that be a realistic normalization of how how messy parenthood is, like, I think it's important to self-disclose that for me. And that's not, not a very clinician who does that. I I say that too. I also think it's helpful because your examples actually really like a come to life right? Um, in like mm-hmm. so many ways. And I think it does, it helps to normalize, help people feel much less alone. Um, and I think when it comes to any kind of, you know, more marginalized community, people are looking to feel connected and not as alone, right? In that, does somebody else understand my experience? Um, you know, are you going to judge me also is a big thing that kind of comes up, right? Do you have any understanding of what X, Y, and Z might be like? Um, so I yeah. think it's so helpful sometimes that disclosure, piece of things. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, what you said about, even though you know all the things of what to do, it's hard sometimes to do like in the moment. Right. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing is true about when our kids come to ask and ask us questions or say things, right. Um, we really want to, especially when it comes to like, who am I, where am I have some of those answers pre thought of as much as you can. Right. So yeah. that it's not when you're like rushing out the door. Cause sometimes I feel like that's when it always is when like my phone's ringing, I'm making dinner, the baby's crying and my daughter has some really big question. And I'm like, Oh my God, I can't think right now. Right. And yet this has now become an important pivotal parenting moment. And I feel yeah. the pressure. <laughs> right. To get it right. Absolutely. Right. And sometimes yeah. I'll say, I love this question. Can we talk about it when we're like at bedtime. That can also buy you some time. Yes. I feel like bedtime is a great time sometimes, depending on your schedule, but to just have these like nice one-on-one larger conversations. Yes. I am a big fan of the bedtime debrief. (laughs) (laughs) As long as it wasn't a really messy bedtime. (laughs) Oh gosh. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this was an interesting little bonus conversation at the end. Yeah, I know. I hope people stuck around to get, get all the juicy details, but I... 
I'm really grateful for you coming on and just being so real and vulnerable and honest because, you know, I think as we've been saying, like, that's just what people really at the end of the day, they want to know that someone else out there is doing something hard and they're not alone in that, even if it's not exactly the same match, match. Well, and thank you for kind of bringing up this topic. I think it's a really important one. So I'm really happy that you kind of thought to bring it up and that your viewers would be interested in it. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Sarah. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and follow, rate, and review Securely Attached on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're streaming this episode. This small act can have such a massive impact and it helps the algorithm know that people are finding these episodes beneficial, allowing it to show up in more searches. So let me know what you think so far. If there's a topic that you want to hear about or anything you'd like us to improve, whatever it is, I want to hear from you. Plus, if you send a screenshot of your review to info at drsarahbren.com, I'll send you my Banish Burnout weekly calendar along with the kids version straight to your inbox to thank you for your support. So thanks for listening and don't be a stranger.